All right, Matt, welcome not only to share about Hawaii, uh, but to team preaching. I don't know that we've ever done this. Uh, this is the first time I've done it with you. Yeah, that's right. Second time overall, so. Second time overall, yeah, you're a newbie. We do this all the time here at Beulah. Great chance to, uh, uh, for friends to work together to share the gospel. So we started um, last week, of course you weren't here, and, uh, but most of the folks here were. We started a series in the book of Psalms. Okay, now, congregation, this is your chance to show Matt <laughs> that you were listening last week. Last week we said that Psalms is the longest book in the Bible uh, in regards to the number of chapters and in regards to the number of verses. But we said that it's not the longest book of the Bible in regards to words in the original Hebrew language. There's actually two books longer than Psalms in regards to words. Do you remember what they are? They got it! Genesis and Jeremiah! That's awesome. Now we're going to put you on the spot. How oh. many, how many uh, chapters or books does Psalms have? Uh, 150. All right, well done. Yeah. Good job. How did you know that? Uh, Zeke told me before. Zeke told so, you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven years of Bible school, but I just learned that this morning. So There you go, there you go. So uh, as we continue to get our bearings in this book of Psalms, what we're calling God's jukebox, his iTunes library, his Spotify playlist, uh, let's look a little bit more just to, at how Psalms is put together. I found this pretty cool infographic. I think if you have a New Living Translation Study Bible, this might be in your Bible. Um, the, the way this infographic works is that it, uh, each chapter in the book of Psalms Psalms is a different circle. I know it's hard to see from a distance, uh, but each chapter is a different circle. So they have different sizes based on how many verses are in the book. So for example, the largest circle you see is uh, Psalm, anybody want to guess what chapter that is? Psalm 119. How many verses does it have? Nobody's even going to like cheat and look or anything. A bunch. <laughs> That's right. The most. Uh, I believe it's 176. Does that sound right? 176. Do you know what the shortest chapter in Psalms is? We're going to go ahead and sh point out to that one. It's just a speck up there. That's, a, I believe, Psalm 117. Any guesses as to how many verses are in that? Two is correct. Well done, folks. So uh, just like uh, with, with music today, we have different genres or styles of music, right? We've got like praise and worship music. We've got rap and hip hop and pop. And if you want to call it music, we have country. Uh, so... <laughs> wow. It's a good thing they don't have tomatoes. I know. <laughs> 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 Sorry, country fans. Didn't realize that would be such a bad joke. <laughs> Say what? It is. Okay, well... Um, so the, the book of Psalms also has different styles or different genres, if you will. And so in this infographic, the, uh, the different colors represent different Psalms. So um, for example, if we look at um, uh, yellow, yellow are songs of praise. And uh, what we find uh, is that even within these genres, some Psalms would, would really fit in different, different groups, right? So for example, Psalm 139 is uh, in this in this diagram is, is a yellow psalm saying it's a song of praise, but our teenagers found out a couple weeks ago in Sunday school that um, Psalm 139 isn't just a song of praise about how God made us, but the hope that behind that is that we would put our trust in God, which in this diagram, uh, let's go to the next slide, is a light blue slide, light, light blue color. Um, if you were uh, celebrating because God had been good to you, you might go to a green psalm. Those are psalms of thanksgiving. 
uh, if you were, what's next? Uh, so we're going to go down here to gray. I believe those are um, great psalms to read when we're sad, when we're grieving, when we're disappointed. These are psalms of lament. If you're a sixth grader and you're brand new to the school you're in, you're getting picked on because you're small, uh, you probably want to read the, the black psalms. Um, sometimes those are called imprecatory psalms, uh, which are like, God, will you just smite these people who are being mean to me? <laughs> Not exactly like being bullied. Um, but that's, uh, th- there is a section of psalms that we read when we need vindication. Uh, you might also read the purple psalms, uh, which focus on the fact that, that, that God is king and he's ruler over all. Uh, today's psalm, the, the psalm that we're going to look at over the course of the sermon, is actually found in the brown psalms, which are the wisdom psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 127 today. You may remember last week we said that the book of Psalms was compiled or written over more than a thousand years by seven different authors, and one of those authors was Solomon. Solomon, of course, was King David's son. Solomon wrote how many of the psalms? Look at that, man. They are really good. On fire. On fire, I'm telling you. So Solomon wrote two of the Psalms, and Psalm 127 is one of those. So this is actually uh, what's called a Psalm of Ascent. Uh, There are, what, 15 of these? Uh, They start at Psalm 120, and uh, then Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are all these Psalms of Ascent. Now, what's the deal with a psalm of ascent? What does that mean? Well, these are the songs that the people would sing, families would sing, clans, groups, whatever would sing, as they were traveling from their village, their home village, to Jerusalem to worship, to perform sacrifices. Now, you remember that Jerusalem is on a mountain, so whether you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, you always go up, you always ascend to Jerusalem, to the temple there. So, so these are songs, uh, Psalm 127 being one of them, that families would sing on their way to Jerusalem uh, as they were traveling to worship. So to put it in modern day lingo, um, how many of you, as you travel with your family in the car, you have games you play, like the alphabet game or I spy or don't punch your brother in the arm? <laughs> Do you have games like that that you encourage your family to play so you don't have to hear every three minutes, are we there yet? So that's kind of what these Psalms of Ascent are. It's what the family did as they traveled together. So with that in mind, uh, let's read together, or if you'd like to just listen, you can do that. Psalm 127. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. When Earl and I started sort of brainstorming uh, different Father's Day ideas, one of the things that we both agreed on initially is that we want uh, a sermon or we want some sort of a 
a message for, for dads uh, that will be encouraging. Because uh, I don't know about uh, all the Father's Day messages that you've heard. Uh, if you've heard any, because Father's Day, we, you know, we, we, we really lift mothers up. Mother's Day is a big deal in our culture. Mothers are fantastic, but they, if you ask a famous athlete, and they're always like, thanks, mom, for everything that you did, and the dad's like, wait a minute, I was the one playing catch with you. <laughs> Fathers can take sort of a backseat role, and Mother's Day is always about mothers, thank you, you're fantastic, and you're wonderful, and Father's Day messages are always like, dads, do better. You can do better, dads. Be a leader. <laughs> I personally haven't heard a lot of Father's Day messages that are just encouraging, uplifting, that deal with sort of the, the difficulties that can come from being a father. We don't always share those difficulties, don't, do we? We don't always share sort of what's going on in the inside. And, and if I can just be vulnerable for a moment, it, it's not easy being a dad. Like, there's no user manual for these kids, and I know moms probably feel the same way. I had uh, our daughter, and, and I was like, oh, I've got this dad thing down. When she was born? Yeah, well, yeah, when she was born. Like, by the time you brought her home like, things hospital? are going really well, and, um, oh, she's, she's fantastic. And then I had my son, and it's like, where did this come from? Well, one day, mommy and daddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where did this come from? Because, because my son and my daughter are so much different from each other. My son, in, in a much greater way, really tries my patience. <laughs> it's because he's just like you. And I was going to say, he's just like me. And, and how many parents out there are even dads, and, and you see something in your kid, and you're like, oh, no, he got that from me. How many parents or, or dads out there as you're raising kids and you see all of the mistakes that you made every time you lost your temper, every time that you, you did something that, that you just, in the moment you regret, you said something or you did something and you could just see the discouragement in your kid's life? in their eyes, and you just think, man, I am such a failure. There's no manual that comes with how to do this, and time and time again in my own life, and I've just, I look back at my actions, and oh, and I think that's, in some sense, when it comes to, to having a manual or ways that, that us fathers can be encouraged to know that, that God is still working despite what we do. God is still working in our kid's life despite what we do. Despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, despite the, the times that we don't do what we know that we should do, God is working. And the psalmist says this, Right? That it's not all about human effort. We like to think it's about human effort. We like to think that, oh, well, if my kids are going to be Christ followers, and if they're going to be godly, and if they're going to be doctors and lawyers, then it's all dependent upon me. And the psalmist says, no, 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 no. You can do everything right, but unless God is involved, unless he is the center of our activity, 
then all of our efforts are in vain. If you're, if you're building a house and it says, listen, unless God builds the house, unless God is involved in, in your family, unless he is the center of what you do, unless God is the center, unless God builds it, the builders build in vain. Uh, unless God watches over the city, the watchers watch in vain. It, it's God is the center. God should be the center. And, and we like to say it's all about human effort, right? It, it, we like to be self-made people. We like to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. And we, we like to say that it's all about our human effort. And the psalmist is saying, no, 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 it is God who does the work. Now, that's not an excuse for us to like, be back and be lazy and just say, well, okay, well, whatever. No, the psalmist is saying, listen, make God the center of all your activity. Make Him the basis for everything that you do. Because great things will be accomplished only when God is the builder. What, what God uh, calls us to do, what God sets apart a in mind to do, God will provide the means to accomplish it. Do you believe that? Listen, we, we had a lot of financial support to raise, and, and people in a very short period of time, in a matter of months, like four months, we had to raise this large amount of money, and people would say, are you concerned? And I said, well, sure, the human side of me wants to be concerned, but I also have to believe this. If God has called us, then God will provide a means for us to do what he's called us to do. If, if God has called us to, to raise our kids to love Jesus, if we are faithful and obedient and, and make him the center of our activity, then what will happen? God will be the one who is working in our lives to transform us, to help us to know how to raise these kids. But it is God who empowers us to do the work. Sometimes despite our shortcomings, despite our failures. Because we know that it is God who is working and so, although we're called to be good parents and loving fathers and, and, and faithful in our obedience, we recognize that our, our need to pray for our kids, that our prayers for our children matter. Because unless God is involved, unless God is involved in transforming their hearts and in their lives, it doesn't matter what we do. And so as fathers, it should encourage us that if you love Jesus and you're modeling this in your life, despite your shortcomings, to trust in God to transform your kids' hearts and lives. Because unless God is involved, unless he's the center of all the activity of your home, everything else is vanity. So remember, this is a song that families would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem. And so there's a point here, and, and, and it starts, the song starts by talking about the fact that God is in charge. If, if God's not at the center, the builders labor in vain. Notice what it doesn't say is if God is at the center, the builders don't have to labor. No, it's hard work to be a dad. It's hard work to parent children. But the song starts by reminding us that the proper place for God is at the center. And, then, and then, then Solomon, after he has a sense that we've gotten the point that God must be at the center for our hard work to matter, 
He kind of shifts gears. And what's he say in verse three? Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring, a reward from him. So last week we talked about this poetic tool that that the Hebrew writers used. Do you remember what it's called? Yeah, that one's a little tougher. Parallelism. So let's say it again. Parallelism. Parallelism. And what does parallelism mean? Yeah, they're parallel. They, they run right beside, right, right beside or up uh, you know, on top and bottom of each other. It means they say the same thing using different words. So in this case, verse three is parallelism. The, the, the two lines of the verse are saying the same thing. Children are heritage, offspring are reward. They're both conveying the same message, message that children are a gift from God. Say this with me. My children are a gift. My children children are a gift. Now, come on now. (laughs) Say it like you believe it. My children are a gift. Okay, some of you, I can tell, I still have to do a little work to convince you of that. We're going to leave that to the Holy Spirit. Um, Solomon reminds us that children are a gift from God. And then he goes on in verse four, and he says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born to one in one's youth. Now, how much do you know about arrows? Let's, let's talk a little bit about arrows. I brought a few with me. I didn't bring a bow because I've seen Matt shoot before and I was afraid that would turn out poor. But let's talk about arrows. What do you know about arrows? This is an arrow, yes? Or as one of my children, uh, the one who's home this weekend, prefers to call them darts. Um, but, but this is an arrow. And uh, let's start with uh, the longest part of an arrow. Do you know what this part is called? Dang, you guys are good. We got a hunter here. Ron, you should come up and do this part. You know way more than I do about arrows. This this is called a shaft. Now, when it comes to uh, an arrow, when it comes to the shaft, there's a few things that matter. For example, the length. Uh, All three of these arrows... You never touch another man's arrows. (laughs) All three of these arrows are different lengths. Um, So length matters. Uh, diameter matters. The, the thinner an arrow, the smaller the diameter, the, the further uh, it'll pierce the target. Uh, weight matters. Uh, lighter arrows will fly faster, but heavier arrows do more damage when they get to the target. That's what I always used to tell my younger brother when he would hit me and run away. <laughs> Just you wait. You may be faster, but when I get there. Um, <laughs> sorry, I digress. Uh, let's see. Oh, and uh, then they, then arrows have this thing called spine. Spine is the measure of force or of energy that an arrow can absorb. Um, because when you shoot an arrow, believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe with an arrow like this, but when you shoot an arrow, when it first comes off the bow, it actually bends. And so uh, you got to make sure that you have some good spine. Now for modern archers, uh, all that's pretty much decided. As a matter of fact, you can see I got mine off the barcode tree. Um, you know, we go to the store and we buy these. Typically they're made of fa- fiberglass or these are aluminum or uh, they make some of carbon, carbon fiber. But in Solomon's day, when he says children are an arrow or like arrows in the hands of a warrior, he's reminding us that although they're a gift from God, they're a lot of work, right? So um, Solomon didn't get to go to uh, MC Sporting Goods or Dick's or Walmart or wherever you'd buy your arrows. He didn't get to go and pick them out of the, the, the display rack there. He didn't get to ch- choose them based on their, their weight or their design or their length or anything like that. In Solomon's day, they actually had to harvest wood that they would turn in to arrows. Now, believe it or not, there's not an arrow tree whose branches are perfectly made for arrows. There's some that are better than others, but when an archer would 
set out to select their arrow. They'd have to find one, you know, a piece of branch that was approximately the length they wanted. Uh, They would want it to be as straight as possible, although I've never seen a branch grow perfectly straight. Have you? Um, They'd probably want to make sure it was smooth. Again, I, I don't know that I see that too often in nature. And so the idea is that they would have to work with their arrow to make it smooth, to make it straight. They'd have to select wood that would have the, the right amount of resistance, uh, the, right, um, the right spine, so to speak. And so the message is for dads, yes, God's children are like arrows in our hands, but we must work to form our children. We've got to work to form our children. Everything that we want to instill in our children is going to take time and energy. It all takes time and energy, just like forming an arrow. Uh, If you want your child to have the perfect basketball shot, you're going to have to work with them. It's going to mean long, many, many hours, long days, long nights at the hoop, shooting over and over and over until they have to put ice packs on their wrist. Uh, after you're done. If you want your child to learn how to make beautiful art, it's going to take time and energy. It's going to take trial and failure. If you want your child to learn how to uh, cook the perfect dish, again, it's going to take time and energy. If you want them to learn how to manage money appropriately, it's going to take time and it's going to take energy. Solomon says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior or children born in one's youth, and he's, he's trying to help us understand that it takes effort. This is why Moses said in Deuteronomy, Pastor Andrea read these verses earlier, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Okay? They're to be on your hearts. God's to be at the center. But you have a role in that, dads. We have a role in that. Moses says, impress them. Not not just say them occasionally. Not just bring your kids to church so the youth pastor and the children's director can, uh, can teach them the Bible. But you impress these things on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. If you want your children to grow up to love and to serve Jesus, it's going to take energy and time and effort and trial and failure. You have to form your children. As a matter of fact, there was a group not too many years ago called the Leadership Network who did a study to see um, what is it? What are the things that uh, children who grow up and who don't leave the church when they leave for college, what are some of the things that they have in common? They found four things. First of all, their parents had a genuine faith. And so the parents that raised these children who stuck with the faith, mom and dad had a real authentic faith that the kids saw lived out. Not just that mom and dad took them to church a couple times a month, but they saw mom and dad pray. They saw mom and dad read scripture. And and there's some other things that they saw mom and dad do when mom and dad thought the kids weren't watching. Number one, they had genuine faith. Number two, they demonstrated their faith by giving. This is actually a second category. People, teens who didn't walk away from their faith when they graduated from high school one of the things they all had in common is they saw the priority of giving in mom and dad's life. Not only did they watch mom and dad, you know, write the tithe check, so to speak, and stick it in the envelope and stick it in the plate, 
But mom and dad actually taught their kids how to give back to the Lord from an early age. They, uh, they gave them a chance to earn money, and then they taught their kids what it meant to, to tithe on that, to put it in an acorn bank or to put it in the offering plate or whatever that would look like. Number three, uh, mom and dad had genuine faith. The kids saw mom and dad give. Number three, they expressed their faith. Mom and dad expressed their faith by serving in a local church. You know, it's one thing to bring your kids to church and to be there with them every Sunday and every Wednesday. I mean, that's that's excellent. But we take it to a whole nother level when Junior sees dad serving in the church, passing the offering plate, helping to prepare communion, going and visiting homebound people, serving on on a board, teaching a Sunday school class, working with the trustees. There's all kinds of ways to to get plugged in and serve. But when our children see us active in the local church and doing our part, it drives their faith deeper, that drives the roots deeper. And then if you want to even maximize that, the study said, have your kids serve alongside of you when it's appropriate. Give your kids actual responsibilities, not just to look cute, but let them help pass the plate. Let them come to a, a work day with the trustees and, and move stones and, and do whatever is happening. Give the kids a meaningful chance to serve. One more thing, they sent their kids on cross-cultural missions trips. So when they did this study, the kids who didn't graduate from their faith, when they graduated from high school, one of the common denominators was they had done missions work outside of their culture. And and not just that mom and dad sent them, but more times than not, that mom and dad took them. Now, most families I know go on at least one vacation a year. As a matter of fact, at the end of this week, my family is heading to the East Coast and uh, we're gonna take a a week and we're just gonna go and vacation. That's a great thing. Nothing wrong with that. What message do our kids get when the only trips we take are for fun and relaxation? What values does that instill in them? Again, nothing wrong with a family vacation, But what if instead of another trip to to Disneyland or another trip to Cedar Point or another trip to the lake house, what if your next vacation was a service project to West Virginia, the, the neediest county in West Virginia? And what if you were to just walk alongside a church or a camp and just do ministry? What if you were to take a long weekend and... Um, find a a camp and I'd be happy to connect you with one uh, away from this area where your family could go and you could just paint dorms or you could do landscaping and just serve others. If we're going to raise our children to know and love Jesus, we're going to have to form them. It's going to take work and intentionality. It's not just the, uh, uh, the shaft of an arrow that matters. Uh, Of course, this arrow is relatively useless because I have no tip or arrowhead on it, right? The arrowhead's kind of important when you're going to use an arrow. There's all kinds of different arrowheads, and and we could talk about that, but when it comes to aiming the arrow, the arrowhead is important. There's all different kinds of ways to aim an arrow, but many of them have something to do with putting the, the tip of the arrowhead on the target, on what you want to hit, right? You want to line it up. And so when it comes to raising kids, it's not just the shaft that matters, but also the, the head at the tip of the arrow, uh, which has to do with aiming our children. Matt, talk to us a little bit about that. Okay, fine. I feel a little guilty now because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking our kids to Cedar Point and Disney World. So, 
Yes, but then you're moving overseas to spend your life doing missions work. We've shaped the arrow. I know when I was a kid, we would make uh, different weapons, uh, bows and arrows and everything, and we'd shape it. And, and I'll tell you what, it wasn't so that we would just be able to like, put it on our shelf and admire how great of a job that we had done. It was to shoot it at our friends. <laughs> right? With friends like you. Yeah, with friends enemies. like me who needs enemies, right? right, right. So uh, the, the, we had a target in mind, right? We knew that if we were going to hit my friend uh, Aaron, I wasn't going to aim at Ty. Really? Uh, I mean, it seems obvious, right? Th that we know what our target is and, and our target transforms our, our present actions. If my target is over here, I'm not going to pull the bow and arrow back and, and like think that it's going to bounce off the wall and hit the arrow over there, or hit the target over there, right? Works like that happens in cartoons. And it works in, for Robin Hood. In, it works for Robin Hood. It works for Earl. But uh, we <laughs> can't all be as fantastic as Earl is at shooting bows and arrows, right? What's our target? We've put in the time and the energy as, as fathers, as parents. But, but what's, the, what's the purpose What's the purpose of, of raising our kids in the church? What's our kids of, of praying with them and taking them on mission trips? What, what's the purpose of all that time and energy? Is it so that we get, they, they get to the end of their life and they're not following Jesus? Several uh, years ago, I had the privilege of, uh, excuse me, I get emotional because baptize, baptizing my daughter. Mm. Whew, even now, several years later, it's emotional for me because my goal for my children is that they would love Jesus and follow him. That's my target. For me, nothing else matters than that. I don't, I, I don't care if you're working uh, any job. It doesn't matter. Do you love Jesus and are you following him? That's my target. That's what I'm aiming for. That's, that's what the target I want to hit. And that future target of, of someday in my kid's life, that, that throughout their entire lives they're loving Jesus and following Jesus, it transforms how I act as a parent, doesn't it? It, it transforms the things that I do and the ways in which I shape my arrow and, and whether I make it heavy or light. Or, it, it shapes everything. And I'm aiming at that target as parents Christian parents who love Jesus, that should be all of our goals. That should be all of our targets to raise Christ followers who love Jesus. And because of that, it transforms how we aim, how we aim these arrows. Let me give you an example. Uh, my wife and I are at the age where we've begun to uh, think about retirement. And it's never too early, at least that's what the financial people tell us, uh, to think about retirement. And the first question that the, the, the retirement guy uh, always asks is this, what is your goal? And, uh, you know, we're, I'm like, I don't know, let's say $40,000 a year in retirement. I don't know. I'm just making up a number. 
Every year, $40,000 is coming in through all of our investments and all of our Social Security and everything like that, and um, that's our goal. And what does the uh, retirement guy do? He, he goes and he puts in all of this information about our goal, and he begins to say, all right, if that's your goal, this is what you need to do now. What, what, what resources do you have available now to accomplish that goal? If I were to come to him and say, all right, I want a million dollars a year in retirement, and I've got $100 a month to put towards it. Some of you laugh, and rightfully so. You're like, eh, I think you're going to be a little short. I, I don't think you're going to reach your target. As parents, if our target is kids who love Jesus, there are things that we can begin to do now, not just to shape, but in, in terms of, of what we do, what we prioritize, what we aim at, how we aim our kids. Are we aiming our kids towards Jesus or towards other things? Are we aiming our kids towards Jesus and, and those priorities and those values? Or are we aiming at the things that the world aims at? Uh, I have been a pastor for a number of years, and I've seen uh, the actions of parents in, in terms of doing things. And, 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 of course, they're Christ followers, and I'm sure in their own hearts they, they want their kids to be Christ followers. But I've seen their actions, and I've seen the ways at times in which they raise their kids. And, and my biggest fear for them is this, that the values and the things that they're aiming at for their kids are, are, are the world's values. Money and success. I, if I can, I'm not your pastor, so I can maybe speak a little, maybe step on some toes. One of the biggest things that in our own culture for our kids that I've seen parents my age uh, aim their kids towards is athletics. And I love athletics. I am an athletics, uh, I, I'm not, this is not against athletics. I'm just saying that I've seen everybody thinks their kid's going to be the next Tiger Woods. Everybody thinks their kid's going to be the next pro, and, and they devote their lives and all of their energies into making sure that their kids can be the best. And it doesn't matter whether their kids are playing that sport seven days a week, 365 days a year, or not. They're going to aim towards that. And I've seen parents prioritize sports over church. Now, that's just one example. And again, I love sports. There's nothing bad about sports. But what are we aiming our kids at? Can our kids play sports as we aim them at Jesus? Because here's the thing. Our kids see what our target is. They see the ways in which we prioritize things. And so as parents, as fathers... I invite you to, to as, you, as you live your life, as you look at, maybe some of you are at the age of, of having grandkids, and I know a lot of grandparents who bring their grandkids to church, help your, parent, help your children to aim their kids to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Make Him the center of our activity. Make Him creating kids that are faithful followers of Jesus, our target and our desire and everything else. If that's our center, if that's our goal, then sports and money and success, those, those are things that might happen, but the most important thing happens. 
that our kids see where we place our priorities. And as we see that, we begin to launch them out, launch the arrow out. Trade you. I'll take the dole. Okay. That's right. So uh, we form our children. Uh, we aim our children. And uh, still an arrow is useless until we launch our children. But there's two parts of the arrow that have to do with launching the children. First one's called the fletching. Uh, you might call it the feathers. You'll notice here, um, this has two different colors on the fletching. Yeah, it has purple feathers or veins, and it has a green feather or vein. Do you know why that is? Yeah, that's right. This is the cock feather. These are the hen feathers. And here's the deal. When you put your arrow on a bow, you want to make sure the cock feather, that's the one that's colored differently, that it's aimed out so that when you launch it, when you release it from the bow, the feather doesn't catch the bow and send the arrow doing all kinds of weird stuff. Okay, this is the fletching. That's the first part that has to do with launching our children. And then the second part is this part at the end here. What's this called, Ron? It's called the knock. So uh, the knock actually is kind of important, uh, especially on modern bows. That's what holds the arrow to the bowstring. There's, there's actually, you can feel it snap on. There's, a, there's just a little bit of grip there. That's important because if the uh, arrow leaves the bow too early or too late, your arrow's not going where you want it to. You can launch it all you want, but if, it, if you launch it too early or too late, it's not going to do what it was designed to do. You're not, certainly not going to hit your target. It doesn't matter how good your aim is or how good your, your forming was in the shaft of the arrow. Now, here's the deal. Um, when, when you hunt, uh, especially when you hunt larger game with archery, um, there's typically a little time from when you draw back on your target until you release the arrow. Um, and so it's important that the knock do its job well. You know, when it comes to launching an arrow, it occurs to me that some of the most important parts of launching the arrow come long before you've ever drawn down on a target, okay? Uh, when, these, when these feathers are selected and put into place, uh, the arrow isn't even finished yet. It's not even ready to shoot yet. And yet that's crucial for the launch. When the, when the knock is selected and when it's fit to the end of the arrow, of course, the goal is that at some point this arrow will be launched and, and hit its target, but that's long before that ever happens. The same thing, the same truth matters when it comes to launching our children. The most important work of launching our children happens long before it's ever time to release the string and let them fly. The heavy lifting, the hard work is done long before they turn 18 or long before they graduate college or long before whatever that threshold is in their lives that, uh, that, that moms and dads have been working to prepare their children for launch. And so what I'd like to do uh, is just share with you a few things that, um, that, that people shared with my wife and I as we were preparing to launch on this adventure of uh, parenting. Uh, some of these things have been useful to us. Some of them may be useful to you who are still raising children. Some of them you may say, eh, that's, eh, doesn't matter. Uh, some of these things you'll probably want to argue with me, and that's okay. You're welcome to argue with me. Um, some of you may hear these things and decide that you're going to pray more earnestly for our children because I can't believe they have to live with that. And some of you will say, are you kidding me? Their kids have it so easy. 
So you could take this advice for what it's worth. I pass it on from others who have passed it on to us. Just a, just a few pieces of advice on how to prepare to launch our children. And we prepare long before it's time. So first of all, when your children are babies, make the family the center of the baby's life, not the baby the center of the family's life. Okay, there's a, there's a difference there. Uh, think of your family like a circle of chairs. And so as these, uh, there's, a, there's a chair for every member of your family and they're in a circle and there's a lot of things we can go to there. But imagine in the middle of that circle, uh, there's one chair. Now the idea here is that from time to time in every family, someone needs to move from the circle into the center chair because they have challenges or issues or things they're facing that require the, the, the whole family's attention. That's natural, that's healthy. It's good to have a place in the center where a family member can sit to receive extra attention and care from the family. It becomes dysfunctional or unhealthy when the same person sits in that chair too long or too often. Regardless of the needs that person is facing, there has to be a sense in a healthy family in which we all share. No one person becomes the center of family attention or family focus for too long, um, but we equally share in what's happening here. And so that means when you bring your baby home from the hospital for the first time, by all means, mom and baby ought to have a chance to sit in that center chair. They need a little extra attention, a little extra care. But as soon as you can, move the baby from the center seat to one of the seats in the circle. Don't make them the focus of everything the family does. Make the family the focus of everything the baby does. Do that when they start out and they'll grow up with a healthy sense of their place, not only in the family, but in the world. You'll be preparing them for the eventual loss. Uh, another piece of advice we got uh, from, from people as we were launching into parenting, talk early and often about your expectations. Talk early and often about your expectations that at some point your children are going to leave your bow. They're going to leave your house. They're going to be launched early and often, and, and you can figure out what that is for your kids, um, but they need to know that there's going to come a time when they're out of here, or if you want to say it more tenderly, where they're going to become adults. In our family, our kids know that there's two options that they have after they graduate high school. This is it. You have two options. Option number one is further your education in a way that fits with who God's made you to be. Option number two is get a job so that you can pay rent and take care of other adult responsibilities. Now, this doesn't have to be how you do it in your home. This is, this is description, not prescription. But our kids know when the time comes, when they, when, you know, pomp and circumstance plays and they throw the hat and, and all that's over, it's either college of some kind or it's sustainable living. It's a job so they can make money. They're welcome to live in our house after graduation as long as they're doing one of those two things. They're either working through college or they have a job that's allowing them to pay us rent because we only have 100 bucks a month to put in retirement. <laughs> or they're figuring out a way to survive as an adult. Talk early and often. Let them know the expectations that there will come a time when I'm going to release the bow and you are out of here. Uh, also, set expectation for significant rites of passage. Set expectations for significant rites of passage. You know, there are rites of passage that every child needs to walk through. And moms and dads, I say dads especially because we tend to be the ones that uh, have a firmer hand. You do your child no favor if you allow them to grow up and be uncomfortable spending the night at a friend's house, for example. 
That's something they need to do growing up. They need to learn how to be away from home. They need to learn how to, uh, to look and be safe in places that aren't always that familiar. We do our kids no favors when we don't require them to get a driver's license or to get a part-time job or to, uh, to do these other various things that become rites of passages in our culture. We need to encourage and, and sometimes force our kids to do that. Every child is different. You know your children the best. Some of them have to be reined in. No, no, you, you, can't get your, you, you can't drive yet. You're only 13. And some of them have to be pushed. Uh, you're 18 now. Well, it's time to get a driver's license. Okay, but we do them no favor when we don't set the expectations that they'll cross these thresholds, that they'll do these things. And then um, don't always clean up your kids' messes. So last Monday, a week from tomorrow, I was taking Zeke out to Prairie Camp, and, and that's a short drive. It's, what, 10 minutes from our house. And, and about halfway through, Zeke goes, oh, no. And I knew right then what was coming. He had forgotten something. I was just praying it wasn't his underwear, and it wasn't. I said, I said what's up, buddy? He said, I forgot my water bottle. And in that moment, I'm like, okay, Zeke's going to do one of two things. He's either going to say, Dad, can we turn around and go get it? Or he's going to say, Dad, will you bring it back to me after you drop me off? And so I was just waiting. I was just waiting for him to ask that. Uh, I asked Zeke this morning, I said, why didn't, why didn't you ask that? He said, well, Dad, because last year when I forgot something, you said, no, we're not going back. I said, did I really sound like that? Well, yes. kind of. <laughs> so my son has learned one of two things. Either the dad's a dork and doesn't help him when he forgets stuff at home, or what I think is actually happening is he's learning that dad expects him to be growing into an adult. And sometimes that means we forget stuff and have to make do without it. Sometimes that means that we make messes and we have to figure out how to clean them up. If we always do that for them, parents, they'll never learn how. And then finally, the last piece of advice that we've gotten and still continue to get from parents who are further down this road is let your children know and see that you have and do fail. Let your, parent, let your children know, dads, that you mess up all the stinking time. Just the other day, we, uh, uh, I got a text message from Sarah in the middle of the day saying the garage door is broken. Hope you have your house key. You can't get in otherwise. And so I'm like, oh, garage door. This thing breaks all the time. It's usually like a 30-second fix, and we're good to go. So I thought, I'll get home. I'll fix it. It'll be fine. Sarah will be glad. She can come home, and the garage door works. So I get home, and, and the kids are there, and I'm trying to fix it, and it's just not working. It's not working. And I'm getting more and more frustrated. And, and I had heard that, 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 that one of my sons, my only son, um, I promised I wouldn't mention his name in this one, though, that, that um, he was swatting at the string or pulling on the rope or something, and that's what was broken. So I brought him out in the garage and said, Tell me, show me exactly what you did. He said, all I did was walk by and tapped it. I said, no, 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 no. You did not just walk by and just tap this rope. This garage door will not open on its own. It doesn't happen when you just tap it as you walk by. And he got this real sheepish look and he insisted, dad, I, I didn't do anything other than that. I'm like, you're lying to me. Go to your room. I gave up because it wasn't working. I cooled off. I thought, I'm going to go back and I'm going to look again. I don't know why I didn't do this the first time. But I looked up above the garage door and realized that my spring was in two sections. I'm like, oh. So Zeke was, it was after his bedtime, he was in his room. So I went inside, I said, Zeke, come on out to the garage. And, and he comes out really sheep. And she's like, what, dad? I said, bud, you told me that all you did is tap the rope, right? 
yeah, dad, that's all I did. I do it all the time. That's all I did. I'm like, well, just tapping the rope doesn't break the spring. I see now that you had nothing to do with this. And I'm sorry that I blamed you. It was wrong of me. Will you forgive me? Mm. That was hard. Yeah. That was hard to admit to my son that I had wronged him. But parents, if we can't do that, our kids will never learn that it's okay for them to fail. They'll never learn how to say I was wrong and I'm sorry. Launching our children happens long before it's time to let them go. And there's things that we can do as they're growing up to prepare them for that. Our goal today has not been to say, do better dads. Um, We're dads who both realize we need to do better. Um, But our goal has been to say it is possible to understand that our children are gifts from God. And that while God expects us to work and to labor, that, that when we do our part and keep God at the center, that he does all the heavy lifting. And so let me just say as as we close here, dads, especially dads who still have kids at home, don't go it alone. It's so easy to get caught up in in what's happening and and how you're not the perfect Hollywood dad where at the end of an hour and a half, everything wrapped up and you and your son gave gave each other a hug and you're good to go for the rest of it. It's so easy to get caught up in reality and lose sight of the fact that you're not the only dad doing this. And so find some other dads who you can walk with, who can help you as you form and aim and launch your children. And if I can just say to those dads who are about my age, don't think that it's just dads with kids at home that can be the most help. Some of the best help and advice that I've gotten is from dads who have grandchildren of their own. And I would say to you older dads, uh, sometimes as a culture, we send the message that uh, after a certain age, you're really not that valuable. And I just want to say that is, that's the biggest lie. Dads my age understand and value what you have to offer. And so whether you have kids at home or not, whether you can look at your kids now and say, man, they went exactly where I aimed them or, or whether you weren't even a Christian dad, you have things you can teach us and we want your input. You may remember what it was like to be a dad in your 20s or 30s or 40s or even your 50s. It can be hard to ask for help. It can be hard to get your head high enough above what's going on to say, I need help. And so to the older men, I would say this, please seek us out and offer your help. We would love to go to coffee with you. We'd love to hear your stories of how you failed and how you succeeded and and what you wish you could do differently with your kids. We need your encouragement. We need your support. Men cannot do this alone. Solomon reminds us that children are like arrows. They're a gift from God. And if we'll put in the hard work with God at the center... the gift will bear great rewards. Amen? Can we pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the gift of your word, for the reminder from Solomon, this, this uh, wisest man who ever lived, that, uh, that parenting, being a dad is tough stuff. And that it takes hard work and it takes labor. And yet by your grace, when you're at the center of that, all of our forming and aiming and launching 
in spite of our mistakes. We can have confidence that our children will go in the direction that you would have for them. And so on Father's Day 2019, we rest in that. We dads don't have to be good enough because our Heavenly Father is more than good enough and more than capable. So Father, we trust in you and we ask that your spirit would continue to help us to put you at the center. Amen.